Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're continuing in our new series, Remembering the Reformation with Dr. John Newfeld. So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 14, as we hear the message entitled, Solo Cristo. We've been celebrating the upcoming 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and no, we haven't been saying it was perfect. Indeed, from my vantage point, I don't agree with Luther's view of consubstantiation. I don't agree with Kelvin's outworking of city governance in Geneva, or of Zwingli's willingness to allow the city council to make decisions about the future of the church in Zurich. A great many mistakes were made, and as I've noted, sometimes the persecuted reformers ended up being persecutors in their own right. But that's just the point. No one who loves the story of the Protestant Reformation believes that they lay down a perfect and inerrant tradition, but they did point us to a perfect authority, to Scripture, and to a perfect gospel. One in which if we come to understand that we're forgiven of our sins by trusting in Christ, that is, through faith alone. And so in order to celebrate a rediscovering of a gospel that had been all but obscured, I, along with the leadership at Back to the Bible Canada, have made up our mind in this week to celebrate the five solas of the Reformation. They include sola scriptura, which is Latin for scriptures alone, is our only source of authority. And sola fide means faith alone. We're saved not by our works, but through faith in Christ alone. Today, I want us to consider the third sola of the Reformation, solo Christo, which means Christ alone. And on this point, that Christ alone is Lord and he alone saves, we might think that there should be very little room for disagreement between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. And from one perspective, you know, that's entirely true. Evangelical Christians who have inherited the rediscoveries of the Reformation must be reminded that we have a great deal in common with Roman Catholics. I mean, for one, we worship the same God. We believe and know that the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. There is but one God who has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this sense, both Catholics and evangelicals believe that when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we mean by that that he's the second person of the three persons who are the one God. Both historic Protestants and Roman Catholics agree also on the Apostolic Creed and the Nicene Creed of 325 and the Chalcedonian Creed of 451 and the Athanasian Creed of the 4th and 5th centuries. When the Athanasian Creed said that the Catholic or the universal faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, we can hear all branches of the Christian faith responding back with a resounding unity, saying, yes, amen, this indeed is our God. Now, it's true that we do worship the same God, and that must be said. Furthermore, when it comes to the incarnation, in which we celebrate the Son of God becoming a man, we agree with the Chalcedonian Creed of 451, which states, we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent— teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. Again, we respond by saying, Amen. 
See, unlike Jehovah's Witnesses who deny both the Trinity and the two natures of the Son, and unlike Mormons who also deny the same, historic Protestants now called evangelicals and Catholics have a lot in common. And so when it comes to the words solo Christo, Christ alone, you would think there would be no difference here. But indeed there was. In a sense, as the Reformation progressed, and as the Reformers worked out the implication of what it meant that our only authority is Scripture and not the Church, and that our only hope for forgiveness of sins lies in faith in Christ and not the sacraments of the Church, see, it became ever more evident that salvation was therefore in Christ alone, solo Christo, and not dependent on priests or the dispensing of the sacraments or the so-called treasury of merits possessed by the church. No, our hope was not in the church. It was in Christ alone. Now at stake were three points of dispute, which I'm going to review in just a little while. But before I do, let's step back and recognize that both Catholics and evangelicals are today, as I speak, united with each other and together locked in a battle with our culture. See, nothing in the culture in which we live agrees with the statement, Christ alone. I mean, consider how offensive Colossians 1, 15 to 18 sounds to our current culture. It says, he, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You see, we live in a culture where your religion is as good as mine, where your beliefs and mine ought to be considered on an equal plane. What's right for you doesn't have to be right for me. And so the idea, as Colossians states so well, that since Christ created all things, he is before all things and therefore is preeminent over all things, including every philosophy and religion and moral system in the world. You see, that truth just makes our people in this culture so mad because that sounds to them like intolerance. Now, to be sure, our culture really aren't relativistic about a lot of things. I mean, I've never heard anyone saying two plus two can be four, it can be five, it can be 82. I mean, all belief systems are equally valid. Neither do I hear that being said about scientifically established facts. No, no. All our society is saying is that when it comes to really important things, then there can be no wiggle room. But when it comes to inconsequential things like the identity of Christ, well, they're your truth and my truth, it doesn't really matter. But here, we respond, actually, there is nothing in all the universe that is even more remotely as consequential as the identity of Christ. He is preeminent over all things. Now, please notice that in our day, another kind of church has been formed that is neither Orthodox, Catholic, or historic Protestant, and this has been called the liberal Protestant church. The liberal Protestant church begins by denying sola scriptura, and so they claim some kind of loyalty to Christ, but deny that he is preeminent over all things. Now, the reason I'm saying these things is not to pave paper over the differences between evangelicals and Roman Catholics, but to make sure that we understand our similarities. 
And I think it's time for us, I mean, for us as evangelicals, that we stop assuming that Roman Catholics believe things that they don't actually believe. I mean, for instance, I have on more than one occasion heard evangelicals express dismay about the Roman Catholic symbol of the crucifix. And we say, well, my Jesus is not still hanging on a cross. My Jesus has risen from the dead. Well, we say that as if we truly believe that Roman Catholics deny that Jesus was risen from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Listen, all Roman Catholics believe that the tomb is empty, that Christ is utterly triumphed. Furthermore, we do well to remember Paul's words in in Galatians 6 verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, if we see in the sufferings of Jesus an explanation for our own sufferings, in which every suffering I bear today helps me identify with the sufferings of the Lord, I do well to think about him hanging on the tree for my benefit. Now, I think it's wise for us to not attribute to others what they don't believe, so that we might also ask others not to attribute to us what we don't believe. And having said that, there's still something very fundamentally different about what people who believe in the same Christ are saying about that one Christ. And that difference is so profound that it has led all evangelical churches to abolish the practice of the Mass and and the practice of the confessional. And it's led us to no longer call the Lord's Supper an altar, rather we call it a table of memorial. And it's also led us to replace priests with pastors. And it's led us to speak entirely different about what it means to have a holy calling. Something about solo Christo caused us to rethink the way in which we as evangelicals do church, the way in which we worship, and what we think it means to live in the presence of this one Christ. There is so much to think about here. And so what we're going to do next is discover the great differences that we have and to understand the implications of what we mean when we say solo Christo. Well, we'll continue with more from Dr. Neufeld next. Our 2017 Bible reading calendar, Defining Moments in Our Faith, is now available. The theme celebrates the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and the many important changes that occurred in the church. Wonderful scenic photos of significant European locations and a reminder of the five solas that outline for us the fundamental truths of our faith. This is a calendar you'll want to have for home or the office, and the first one is free for every household. So call us today for yours at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or email us and request your copy at info at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. All Christians know that Jesus presented the kingdom of God. He taught that in his life and ministry, God's long-awaited kingdom finally arrived. The deaf heard, the lepers were cured, the dead were raised, demons were cast out, and the good news was preached to the poor. To those who witnessed those actual events, that must have been truly breathtaking. But as the apostles and other followers of Jesus looked ahead, they assumed that this must now be the end of the age, that all the evil of this world was about to come to an end. But Jesus himself warned against that. 
Luke, along with other gospel writers, portrays the expectations of the disciples over against what Jesus was overtly teaching. So I'm reading to you from Luke 9, 20 to 22. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Even though the disciples had come to recognize who he was, they did not yet know that he must suffer or why it was that he must yet suffer. And later on, they came to know exactly why that was. I'm reading now from Hebrews 10, 11 to 14. For every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, I hope you picked up on an important several words. For all time, a single sacrifice, and then perfected for all time. This in opposition to the Old Testament priests who repeatedly offered up the same sacrifice over and over and over again. In opposition to them, Jesus offers himself one time, never to be repeated sacrifice. Indeed, when we read Hebrews 10, 11 to 14, well, I should have begun by reading verse 10. There it says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, this teaching comports very well with Jesus' words on the cross. You remember in John 19, verse 30, Jesus said, It is finished. The understanding there is that his work on the cross was accomplished once for all. Now, in the Middle Ages, the church saw the priests performing pretty much the same sacrifice that the Old Testament priests performed. The bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper were so interpreted that not only was the bread transformed into the real body of Jesus and the wine transformed into the real blood of Jesus, but with each celebration of the Eucharist, A real sacrifice of Jesus was being performed for the sins of people. Indeed, this idea that that the Mass was a sacrifice of Jesus was why the table of communion was now referred to as an altar. That is, the altar of the real sacrifice of Jesus. Now, that idea was reaffirmed in the very famous Roman Catholic Council of Trent that was held in the mid-1500s, and then again, it was reaffirmed by Vatican II, held in 1962 to 1965. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that, and I quote, if one says that in the Mass a true and proper sacrifice is not offered to God, let him be anathema. In other words... If you don't believe that the table is an altar where Christ is sacrificed, you are cut off from Christ. Now, that's not a minor thing. And yet, that seems to directly contradict Hebrews 10, which clearly teaches that Christ was sacrificed but once in an offering that is never to be repeated, once for all time. Unlike the Old Testament priests who performed a sacrifice over and over again, this only happens once. 
And so what was at stake is whether a priest could participate in the sacrifice of Jesus or whether he could only, through the Lord's table, celebrate that the one sacrifice had already been made. See, the real question was, was Christ's one sacrifice complete for all times or was it not? But that's not where the argument ended. If a priest can't preside over the sacrifice of Christ, what is a priest? Well, according to Catholic Church, a priest is a mediator between God and man. Look, there's nothing wrong with confessing our sins to another believer. Indeed, James 5.16 teaches us to confess our sins to one another. But Catholicism taught that the priest grants absolution for sins, and he plays the role as a mediator between us and God. Again, the Reformers were driven to the Word of God. What did Christ accomplish on the cross? Since the Bible makes plain that his death on the cross is once for all, never to be repeated again, what has Christ then become to us? According to Hebrews 7, 23-25, Christ alone, solo Christo, is now our priest. Let's read the passage. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And here we have a picture of Jesus as our great high priest, not offering the sacrifice of another, but offering up himself once for all. And since that one sacrifice is sufficient for all time, he saves to the uttermost or completely or absolutely nothing lacking all who come to him. And so he makes intercession for us. Now, building on that theme, we come to 1 Timothy 2, 5 to 6. There we read, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, there is but one mediator. There is but one priest. There is but one sacrifice, but there is but one way to God. It's not through the church, not through the priest of today. No, no, it's solo Christo. It's Christ alone who is both priest and sacrifice and mediator. Solo Christo. Christ alone occupies all of those offices. And once that was realized, it was also realized that the church of this one Christ could not have priests. That office was reserved for Christ alone. Any human being who pretended to that office was stepping onto territory which was held by Christ alone. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the church shouldn't have leadership. But what kind of leadership should they have? See, as the Reformers searched through the Bible, they found a leadership described there. Even though the medieval church called Peter the first pope, the Reformers soon found in the pages of the Bible that Peter describes himself very differently. I'm reading from 1 Peter 5, 1-3. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd or, or pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. Now, you must be very careful. Peter, in fact, plays two roles in the early church. First of all, he is an apostle, something that's unique to him and the others. It's a role that was not repeated. But he's also an elder or a local pastor in which he teaches and guides and serves as an example to the church. 
And so priests were replaced by pastors, whose role it was to learn the teachings of the apostles, that is, those who wrote the Bible, and to teach the flock. The altar of the, sacri- of the sacrifice of the Eucharist was replaced by a pulpit in which the Word of God was preached, where people were encouraged that they could trust Christ alone. Indeed, all Reformation churches, the symbol was not missed that at the center of the church was a pulpit, and on the pulpit rested an open Bible, and behind the Bible, not in front of it, but behind it stood the pastor whose task it was to shepherd God's people to place their trust in Christ who is revealed in the pages of Scripture. See, don't trust me, said the preacher, trust Jesus who is revealed in the Word. And I will help you study the Bible as well. And with that came a new insight. If Christ alone is our sacrifice, if he alone is our priest, and if he alone is our mediator between God and man, it must be that it's not just the pastor who is holy, but that all God's people are made holy through Christ. They have become saints. For that reason, when a believer needs to confess their sins, any godly brother or sister can stand with them and encourage them in confessing. And so was recaptured the priesthood of all believers, not in the sense that they offer sacrifices, but in the sense that all believers now lead one another to trust in Christ. The realization of solo Christo had changed everything, and it still does. John, this is a a great message uh, for all of us. And as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, how similar it may be to the church today where, you know, are are we really practicing this solo Cristo? Is that where the church really is? And and maybe what is the uh, what's the encouragement or what is the challenge to the pastor today? You know, if we go back, first of all, 500 years ago and imagine the scenario in which no church leader knew any different form of church than than what they had been given in the Mass. And, And as they began to study the nature of who Christ is in relationship to us, they recognized that they had to redo church. See, that that takes a great deal of courage, and it allows what you find in the Word to determine what happens when we meet together for worship. So I, I think that is an encouragement for us to do the very same thing. So, you know, Ben, from my vantage point, I mean, as I, you know, I preach for 35 years from a pulpit, and I think that for a preacher, the first thing that they need to commit themselves is nobody should care even a whit about the preacher's opinion about anything. I mean, we're not the pope. We're not even a priest. All we are is a shepherd who shepherds people to pay attention to Scripture so that they might learn it thoroughly and do what it says. So, you know, to me, uh, that is a huge issue. But, I mean, there are a lot of other things that we can rethink in terms of how we actually do worship and how we do the Lord's table. I mean, there's a lot of things that are there to talk about. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The Laugh Again Christmas Tour is coming to a community near you. Join Phil Calloway of Laugh Again, award-winning guitarist Jay Calder, and partnering ministries Back to the Bible Canada and Compassion Canada for an evening of laughter, music, and insight into the true meaning of Christmas. 
The Laugh Again Christmas Tour will be coming to Vancouver, British Columbia on Saturday, November 26th. This is a unique Christmas event for the whole family, friends and neighbours, one you won't want to miss. More information can be found at laughagain.ca and tickets can be purchased at the host church in advance or online at laughagain.ca. Don't pass up your opportunity to begin the Christmas season with friends.